Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. Dorud Behemaya Azizan. Khemi Khoshamadbib. My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books. Today we are honored to be hosting Mahnoz Akhami in conversation with Samira Mohedin on Akhami's new book, The Other Side of Silence, a memoir of exile, Iran, and the global women's movement. I would like to begin by acknowledging that although we have participants joining us from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our presenters today welcome your questions. Please type question into the Q&A box at the screen at any point during the event. Now for introductions. Mahnaz Afhami is the founder, president, and CEO of Women's Learning Partnership. And she served as the Minister for Women's Affairs in Iran from 1976 to 1978. She has been a leading advocate of women's rights for more than four decades. Afghani's books have been published in many languages, and she serves on the advisory boards of such organizations as the Smithsonian Institute, the Global Fund for Women, and the World Movement for Democracy. Samira Moyedin is a multi-award-winning journalist and a producer at CBC Radio. It's such an honor to have them here with us today. As Tarafe Ketab Borushe Banyan, Eftahare Bozorgist Ke Emruz Beshoma, Hoshamad Beguyan, Vanazare Shomara Dar Morede Mozuate Mohemi, Kehast Bashnavim. Please welcome Mahnaz Afhani and Samira Mohiedin. Welcome and welcome to everyone. And um, just before I start, Jacob Steele. Kudos to you on your Persian. That was very good. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for writing this book. Thank you so much for um, being with us today. And thank you to everyone else out there who is uh, watching and listening. Um, I just want to start by really asking you, how are you doing? Uh, because uh, it's been a whirlwind of uh, four months for the Iranian diaspora. And I just want to start by asking you how you're doing, how are you holding up with all the news that's being bombarded at us daily from Iran? 
Well, uh, it, it's been, uh, Samir Jan, it's been both extraordinarily uh, encouraging and, um, and uh, cheerful in the sense that quite unexpectedly, the very first uh, revolution by women supported by men came from Iran, a country where for the last 40 some years, women have been almost um, without visibility, without uh, part, uh, the participation that they want and without uh, all the opportunities that they certainly deserve. But it's at the same time painful because of the harshness and the heartlessness with which they have been treated and uh, how much they have uh, shown courage and uh, uh, and just uh, strength in, in being there and, and stating what they have to state. So it's that combination of uh, tears and laughter that that... Uh, me and uh, my colleagues and friends feel almost every day. Yeah, it's uh, it's really been overwhelming. And as the young people these days say, it's been all the feels, you know, uh, elation to despair, to anger, to sadness, all at the same time. Um, mm. And in, in the author's note to this book, you start off by talking about the importance of preservation. Uh, and uh, and I just want to know why is that right now very important to you? What's going on that that the um, these this preservation of documents of research of what the women's movement in Iran was in the sixties and seventies is so important. Well, because um, people uh, sort of get a little bit confused because of all the propaganda of the Islamic Republic and all of the lack of uh, access and uh, connection that is there and has been there. People are not free to move to Iran and go there or do research or sit and meet people. And then people are not free to uh, express themselves how they wish. There is a lot of misunderstanding about Iranian women. And the fact of the matter is that Iranian women were very active for a long time, you know, in the in the 19th century, they began uh, with Ordat uh, Elaine, and uh, who gave her life for for her uh, gender uh, ideas and for her uh, dedication to equality, uh, and uh, later as well, uh, you know, with, with the various stages of development because Iran was a very underdeveloped country at the beginning of the 20th century. There was hardly schooling for girls at all. There was no uh, decent transportation. There was no legislative uh, history. There was no courts uh, or banks or any of the things that we have gotten used to. Um, so. Uh, it turned around with the coming of the constitutional revolution uh, and uh, women were a part of that and did a lot to 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 uh, push it forward even though the numbers were small but the dedication was amazing and uh, after that there was um, the the, uh, the new government of uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi 
who was very much dedicated to modernization and uh, to development. And uh, from, and he was open to learning because uh, the unveiling that happened in Iran was actually a product of his travel to Ataturk's um, Turkey and uh, learning from them that this was a very important thing on the surface. It sounds like a sort of clothing. What does it matter who wears what? But it was a symbol of all the limitations that uh, uh, could be placed on women just by covering them and having even their physical presence um, uh, forbidden. So after that, almost every two years, something new happened, you know, education, um, uh, the creation of a university, women participating in, in university education, women going outside the country and learning from others. So it just every year, every two years, something new happened. And then, of course, was the uh, getting the right the vote, which was so important. Uh, and uh, they were very, uh, after, after the matter of education, the second thing was really getting the uh, vote and the right to participate. And of course, that had the first revolution of Khomeini, as you know, uh, brought about the first uh, outburst and, and uh, um, uh, upheaval of the radical uh, religion. That's in uh, 1963. That, yes, uh, of course, that one was, uh, cut down, but the but the, the important part of this was uh, the Hannah. I think the important part of women being committed to history, because sometimes even in America where I live now, uh, they I feel that people are not as careful about learning from history as as would be helpful, uh, you know, uh, to them. And uh, so it's it's. Uh, uh, the Khomeini revolution did exactly what he was going to say. He was he uh, got to say later with the 50, uh, 1957, uh, 1979 revolution, and um, so uh, he was uh, he was saying that women should be in the home, that women should not uh, should not vote, that women that being um, dressed normally without cover, full coverage is like prostitution. And uh, of course, they, uh, at that time, there were just two items of the six items of the uh, white revolution uh, of the time that he really opposed. One was women's right to vote, and the other one was um, um, the reform, the agricultural reform. Uh, land the reform, land yes. reform. Uh, so, um, so then uh, the ne next time around, we had the same thing. Although he had learned, or Mr. Khomeini had learned, not to be so forthright in terms of expressing what he had in mind. The second time, he did what was called tariyeh, that is, uh, showing his uh, uh, intentions uh, in the uh, different light, uh, and uh, he uh, he talked about. Uh, going to home and being uh, uh, a spiritual leader, not taking any part of in the government. Women could have all the opportunities, nothing about hijab or anything. But as soon as he entered, before the constitution, before there was even any uh, any uh, government, he first stated he gave a fatwa about uh, hijab and about family laws. 
And uh, of course, the women who had participated in the revolution, not understanding the intention and thinking they're going to have more democracy, they immediately got it before anybody else. And they were the ones that three weeks after the Khomeini's uh, uh, takeover, yeah, they they totally uh, started the demonstrations on the 8th of March. And of course, they were completely shut down and, and hurt and uh, uh, beaten and uh, violently uh, approached. And so they couldn't do much, but that they, they were the first to understand the mistake they had made. You, you sort of outline all of this in the book. Uh, it sort of weaves in and out this whole history of, of the women. And I, I want to get to the, the significance of that cloth, uh, which we are seeing, you know, uh, young girls in the streets uh, in Iran waving and, and burning at times. Um, and just with the caveat that it, in 36, it, it, when Reza Shah did do the unveiling, it was a forced unve unveiling of women, but that changed over, over time. Um, and so if I could start just by talking, I mean, we, you went through the why it's important, this preservation to almost write uh, the history um, of what actually happened uh, through, through the use of memoir. Um, and you start the memoir with these two women, your two grandmothers. Uh, one you call an aristocrat, one you call a rebel. Um, why, what, I mean, they seem to be sort of very opposites, but it seems like they've both influenced you um, in a lot of ways. How are they important to your life? Oh, well, my aristocratic um, grandma, uh, was uh, also a powerful woman. Uh, she uh, run the uh, farms and, uh, and uh, you know, in, in essence, determined how the household would be taken care of. And the household meaning not just the everyday matters, but, but how the agricultural work uh, was handled and, and all of that. So she was a powerful woman, but she thought that, uh, that uh, one had to sort of be diplomatic or have, have to be a little careful in how you step forward and what the consequences are. So uh, she had that kind of um, uh, attitude. My um, uh, radical grandma was the first woman who suddenly decided that she wanted to be a Baha'i. And that's not an easy thing uh, in at the time. This is almost 100 years ago. and. And then, uh, you know, it was it was very, uh, you know, unprecedented that someone from a family of uh, Shiite Muslims, uh, that the Nafisis were, and she belonged to that, that uh, it, it was unprecedented. And what happened was that the family uh, actually made her husband divorce her. Uh, and she was able to keep my mom, uh, uh, her child, when she promised that she would not encourage her to to follow the faith uh, and she she was the first entrepreneur in uh, Kerman and she spoke out and said whatever it was that she wanted to say and she had a whole lot lot of young women whose uh, life depended on her so so uh, the two of them uh, you know 
one of them, uh, the, um, the Baha'i one, uh, sort of pushes me always to see beyond uh, what is uh, around the corner, to, to, to look forward a little bit further and to see the possibilities uh, and to judge the possibilities. The grandma, that, who was the aristocrat, sort of pushes me a little bit to be a little careful when I'm dealing with people who are not exactly on the same page as I am. So the two have helped me a lot because sometimes later when I was in the government, for instance, it would help to understand how diplomacy works, uh, which was her forte. Yeah, I, uh, I could tell that sometimes throughout the book when you do become the, the Minister of Women's Affairs, sometimes the rebel comes out and sometimes the aristocrat is sitting on your shoulder saying, no, no, this isn't the right time. Keep quiet. Yeah. Uh, and for, for sorry, for those who don't know, uh, Baha'i is a, is a um, religious minority in Iran who are uh, systemically uh, persecuted in the country. Um, they're not allowed any form of higher education. Their businesses are shut down. Their graves are desecrated. And uh, the members of the faith are, are imprisoned. Um, and so that has been happening throughout history, but more and more uh, after the uh, 1979 revolution. So if we can get back to the book, I don't want to give away too much that's in the book, but um, so you were talking that your, your, your parents divorce and at the age of 14, you moved to America to be with your mom. What was, what was that like for you? Well, it was very, um shocking um, uh, because uh, all of a sudden I was sort of uh, one long flight and I was from one way of living into a completely different universe and uh, my mom who had been uh, the mistress of this household uh, in my mother in my father's world um, suddenly was living in a small uh, apartment with uh, an American uh, friend and uh, the very idea of, of sitting in the kitchen and uh, eating right there and then having uh, having the uh, um, friend who was my supposedly my godmother wonderful American girl uh, she uh, you know started calling me Leah uh, and brought me something to um, a, a gift, you know, with a scarf around my neck. I still wear scarves all the time from that time, you know. And uh, and uh, you know, within a few minutes, uh, I was had a different name, and I had I was wearing this uh, red scarf and a white angora uh, sweater, and uh, in this space, and I couldn't even recognize myself, you know. I mean as if I, it was an entirely different, uh, you know, uh, identity within minutes, you know, uh, but it wasn't unpleasant. It was just completely shocking. <laughs> uh, did you, while you're in the States, you meet your husband, you, you go to school and you have your first job at a variety store. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and this is where you have your sort of first experience with a union or standing up for your rights against a boss. Um, and in the book, you write that that sort of instance really helped you later on in your life when you returned to Iran. 
and are starting to organize and, and, and you know, whether it's in school or whether it's in your job, how, how did that experience in the U.S. Im impact you? It, it, it uh, really was a, was a defining experience because uh, my colleague or my boss, Rose, um, uh, Spanish-American, uh, who didn't like, as I say, <laughs> didn't like university students working part-time at all. Uh, he was pretty, she was pretty tough with me and, uh, you know, thought that I was just privileged and, and was there not as a worker. And she is the one, when I was um, you know, fired and then rehired, she was the one uh, to explain to me that that was because they didn't want to pay for my uh, vacation, you know. And then uh, when I asked her, uh, you know, uh, about that and what is one to do, and she says, well, I don't know about you, but uh, a worker would go to the union, you know, and then I went to the union. And uh, it was an amazing experience to see these women, their solidarity between them, the way they talk to each other about the problems and the way that they sort of uh, seemed to embrace me and uh, said, we'll take care of it. Don't worry, you know. Uh, and uh, so they did. Uh, and uh, the very idea that the big boss, uh, this guy who never paid any attention to any of us, not even the, the more experienced uh, people, let alone the, uh, the uh, workers from part-time workers, she he came and and uh, kept asking, "Is everything okay? Are you happy?" <laughs> you know? So this whole experience just opened my eyes to the fact that together, you know, we multiply our power, that we can help each other. One person can't by any means do what a whole lot of united people can do together, and that's been one of the you know. Uh, the main uh, uh, learnings of my uh, adolescence and, and my uh, school period. It, it's been amazingly helpful. And so when you when you returned to Iran after all of that, you know, you got married, you finished your, your schooling and you returned, what is 1963 or is it 67? Uh, it's 67. So you return in 67, uh, you've gone eight years or something like that. What what are you returning to? How has Iran changed? Uh, well, um, uh, Iran had changed considerably. Uh, for one thing, the, the, one of the initiatives of the government, which was the, the follow-up to the ideas about educating the population in order to get in the, the uh, development piece working positively, uh, that was very, very helpful. They, uh, the government sent something like 60,000 people, students, to the United States alone, and then there were others in, in Europe, to, to do education, higher education, and specialization. And uh, just in several years, you know, there was just this wealth of people who knew, who had seen other the countries, uh, the more developed countries, and they had studied there and they had been, uh, you know, pretty uh, well educated in specific fields. So uh, by the time I got back, you know, uh, even uh, even the number of women who were uh, who were trained and skilled, uh, because before they kept saying there aren't any women who can take this or that job. 
uh, be engineer or be uh, an electrician or whatever. But when they came back, you know, uh, every year there would be more women who could take up these places and men uh, too. So it, it was an e extraordinary step. And I think Iran was the only country that did it in that way and to that extent. Uh, and uh, and that was just one of the areas because the the local universities also were being uh, expanded and and growing, uh, but the the outside experience was very helpful also. To the extent, uh, yeah, I was just going to say to the extent that when I think back to the people that worked with me in the cabinet. Almost all of them had had a very uh, sophisticated higher education in one of the European countries, you know, and that helped a great deal. And so when you're, I mean, you come back, you have your master's in hand, you start teaching, and you, you studied uh, comparative literature. Yes, English literature, actually. Yeah. And so you're teaching English literature, and then you get offered a job. Um, and so could you take us through that process and then what, what the job was uh, at the women's organization of Iran? Yes, uh, well, um, uh, I, I uh, started teaching and that the, the, the teaching of the university uh, students were also uh, a very important part of my future work because when we were reading stories and you know, stories are amazing how people relate to and, and can see themselves in the, in the roles of the characters. And then uh, the students were doing that and they were very smart and they, did, they were very good in English because I used the same text that I used in America, uh, in Iran. And uh, they were very interested in women who were different and who had more freedoms and who had more freedom of movement and choices and so forth. But at the same time, they taught me that what they would want would be these possibilities, but they don't want to give up everything about their traditions or culture or the way they relate within the family. Uh, a lot of those they want to keep, but have those liberties contextualized within their family relations and cultural context. So that was a, a, a huge uh, learning experience. Yeah, and uh, I don't think any other uh, possibility would have taught me that so well. And that's why storytelling has been one part of our work as we developed it later uh, in the uh, global movement and not uh, just the Iranian one. So um, that, that was a very uh, helpful thing teaching there. Uh, and again, just getting to uh, the job uh, being offered the job of the Secretary General of the Women's Organization was an, an outcome of, of teaching English literature because I was uh, soon after only a year and a half, I was the head of the department because our, the head of our department left for America, he was an American, and I took his place and uh, so uh, what Were you hesitant? Were you hesitant at all in taking on that role? I don't think so. I, you know, that was my other grandma. <laughs> you know, it wasn't my <laughs> grandma. It was my crazy grandma. <laughs> yeah, you are not, you know. And so um, coming out to me, no, I wasn't. But what I was hesitant was my lack of knowledge because when Princess, when um, uh, actually 
Siminda Jali, who was Secretary General, uh, he, she was uh, uh, a professor of psychology at the same university. And I was uh, driving uh, to the university with her from a, from a speech. And she told me, by the way, Princess Ashraf is the head of the Iranian delegation at the uh, UN. And what uh, she wants to bring women into the foreign uh, ministry, there just aren't any women. And she wants to, them to get to know this and so forth. So would you be willing to come to the UN General Assembly for, for that period? And I said, sure, why not? I would love that, you know. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, so there I met the princess and uh, learned a lot about how the UN works, how the diplomats work, how the different con concerns of the government are presented and so forth. And, um, and so uh, uh, following that, the princess, uh, uh, I, I think by accident actually, Thought that I was, you know, uh, the one she wanted because, because of her own presence, you know, her own presence. Uh, when I was giving a speech uh, uh, at the UN, because she had said that she wants the two women that she brought with herself to have a chance to present uh, at one of the committees, and so I was doing that, and she came there to listen, and at the, I, my speech was at the very end, you know. And so uh, she came to, uh, I, after my speech, I got up and everybody got up to leave. And she came to, uh, you know, just say a kind word. And then Prince Adedin, who was the head of the committee, came down and then all the ambassadors stood in line to come and congratulate. And this is also an accident. This is another thing I've learned from my uh, two grandmas, actually, that a lot of stuff in life happened just by accident, you know. I mean, if 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 uh, if I wasn't the last one to speak, and if she hadn't been there just to witness, uh, she wouldn't have gotten this impression that I was this, you know, <laughs> substantial person. Yeah, my speech was nothing special, you know. It was just the accident of this whole uh, presentation that, um, that just really impacted her. So then she asked me to be the secretary general. And then at the lunch, when she asked me to be Secretary General, I at first said, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about women uh, because my field is English. And I'm university professor. I don't know anything about how to organize or, or run an organization. And you know, she just uh, said, uh, well, you know how it is. Men have more, you know, a sense of uh, experimentation on trying things than women, I understand. And that, <laughs> that brought the other grandma back, you know, where I said, okay, then if I can stay at the university, I'll take the job. And uh, so that's how, how uh, uh, that experience ended in, uh, in my taking, uh, switching all together from literature to... to uh, uh, and and I just want to read a bit from from the book where you talk about your experience at um, at the University Women's Association. This is even before you wrote that you realized that during your work in that group that the role of women, their sexuality, their status in the family and in the community is the pillar that holds up the entire edifice of culture, religion and tradition. That once this pillar is shaken, the entire structure begins to tremble. 
And do, do, you, do you still believe that? Oh, absolutely. The more I travel, and I think by now, me and my colleagues in Iran and actually now outside, I've gone to every, every part of the world. The, the thing is the formula is exactly the same. It doesn't matter where you are. The formula is the same. It just looks different. You wear different clothes, different food on the table. But everywhere you go, the structure of patriarchy is exactly the same. And uh, that's why the, the way to change it, you know, is also exactly the same in the sense that the, the whole idea is human right and equality for all, but not in, in, in exactly the same in terms of the way you live it. That is, you want a, a goal that you share, which is full rights for all humans, but the way you implement it has to be substantially shaped by your culture and uh, your uh, condition uh, when, when you begin gaining these. And that li lived experience of those women. Um, Absolutely. And that came through, uh, I mean, uh, I know that you were, you told Princess Ashraf that, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and stuff, but the Women's mm -hmm. Organization of Iran, uh, for those who don't know, uh, ends up having more than 300 branches throughout the country and was really responsible for implementing some really huge changes um, in the country and changing people's ideas. Um, when you went into the areas such as uh, Baluchistan, Kurdistan, and, and other areas that let's say, you know, aren't city centers, how did you approach sort of getting women to get involved in the organization? What, what, what were you doing exactly? You know, our, our uh, uh, women's organization uh, uh, actually uh, groups in different cities and, and uh, villages where people uh, from backgrounds that were a little bit varied, but not too. That is, either they were worked, working in, in uh, agriculture or working uh, in labor, or they were teaching uh, school. Uh, and uh, they, they were very, uh, you know, uh, eager to participate uh, because what we did, uh, also because of the way we approached. Oh, we, uh, we asked the, the women themselves, when I first went, uh, uh, the first year that I was at the Women's Organization, a group of us, you know, went to uh, 40 different uh, parts of Iran and a variety of places, and mostly uh, factories and uh, schools and even prisons, uh, agricultural villages and so forth. And uh, we asked women, you know, what were the top um, uh, challenges? What were the things they really wanted? And for instance, one of the things that I never forget is, is uh, the way that people in the uh, factories, for instance, men and women in the factories reacted. We thought, that is, I personally thought, that, uh, that what, what women want is legal rights, legislative uh, uh, laws. And uh, once I, every, every time we, we asked somebody, you know, what is it that you want? They talked about 
uh, how much they get paid, what the conditions are. And they kept repeating that, you know, and I remember I said, well, do you, do you care to a woman in, in a, a swan in a factory? I said, do you care if, if, if you have the right to divorce, for instance? And she said, yeah, but what's the use of the right to divorce if I have to leave my husband and go live in, under my uh, father's uh, shelter? And she, she, we understood that what she's talking about is economic independence. But unless you have economic independence, legal uh, progress, progressiveness is, is helpful, but it doesn't take care of it. And then also uh, you learn that in order to get to be able to support yourself, you need education. So these are all connected together. And that's why, for instance, at the branches, we had, uh, we for one thing had the branches, the offices in some home or in some place in, in the middle of the least uh, advantageous uh, kind of circumstances close to the poorest areas. And also um, what we had was services for women because once we learned that they wanted to, to uh, get an education or skills and, and learn to work, then they needed childcare centers. Then once they learned that, there would be little battles in the home and they needed legal advice, you know, so we had legal uh, guidance for them. And these centers that developed in, in uh, less advantage, uh, advantaged parts of the cities and, and uh, villages, they became so popular, you know. Uh, there was the last year we were in Iran, there were one million people in one year that came to these to these centers, and and of course, along with these services was also uh, mobilization and learning about rights and what they sh they can have and why what they should have, you know, and so that mobilization was extraordinarily helpful. So as these sort of seismic shifts are happening. In, in society in Iran in the 60s, 70s, and in women's lives, you uh, are offered a position of the, to become the Minister of Women's Affairs. Uh, there, this position didn't exist before. Uh, and so again, this is a new learning experience for you, sort of carving out something that didn't exist. And so how do you, again, approach this new Ministry. Now, I, I have to tell uh, people out there who are listening who may not know, there were only two uh, at the time Minister of Women's Affairs in the entire world governments. Uh, it was Iran and France. So let's just set that stage mm -hmm. and then tell us sort of how you went about uh, really making a mandate for yourself, which didn't exist. Oh, well, what happened was that um, yeah. But we we'd invited um, Francois Giroux, who was the first minister of women, to come to Iran, as a matter of fact, just before, during the, uh, right during the women's year, international women's year, following the Mexico conference. And we had a lot of things going on during that year. There were a seminar a month in every particular um, uh, state. Uh, a seminar that ended in publications and on different topics. And uh, we also had the first uh, uh, film festival for women 
you know, just out of the blue, we just wrote to people who had made films and, and uh, had had festivals around the world. And uh, they wrote back and said, yes, we're coming, we'll do it, you know. And we had this beautiful festival and Iran loved films, you know, more than ordinary, you know. And, and uh, so it was, it, there was a lot of visibility for the women's organization. And then we'd already done a lot at the conference in, in uh, Mexico City. The princess was the head of the uh, Iranian delegation uh, and also the head of the committee, the preparatory committee for the, uh, for the conference. So we had a lot of stuff in the, uh, uh, we wrote the draft that would became the uh, the product of the, um, the first conference on women in Mexico City. So all of that gave a lot of visibility and so forth. But nevertheless, the morning when uh, uh, the prime minister called and said, the, you know, the position of women is very important and we want to have a minister of women, I, I was just sort of dumbfounded, you know, I had no idea that, <laughs> you know, that, that uh, I'm going to be that, you know. And uh, and so I just sort of you know couldn't answer him right away, uh, but uh, but uh, apparently uh, there was no um, not apparently actually I experienced that there was no uh, system there was nothing that described what a women's affairs minister is supposed to do, so that turned out to be very much to our advantage. Because whenever we thought of something that would be helpful, <laughs> we would say, how about this, you know, and, and they said, maybe that's what a woman's <laughs> minister should do. Uh, one of them was that we said that something that later became a slogan, all issues are women's issues, and later became a slogan. But what we did, we said, well, okay, if we're going to have something to do with equality for women, equal opportunity, what we have to do is have all of the ministers uh, who have programs uh, from uh, agriculture to uh, plan and budget to economics to welfare, whatever, uh, education, they should sit together and the highest uh, uh, person, the prime minister, should guide that annual meeting uh, to see how the plans for women's participation are going and once a month I will sit with their senior deputy uh, together and, and we will look to see how we are doing, which is an amazing thing. It's never been repeated anywhere and I wish if we had stayed, if, if our system had not fallen apart, uh, some would say that's why it fell apart. It could also be, I don't know, maybe it was too much, but, but I, I don't believe that quite. Uh, but uh, if we had sustained it, you know, it would have been a, a real a prototype for a lot of women's um, ministries. And uh, all, all issues of women's issues were in fact uh, taken as such. And, and, uh, and each ministry had a, had a timeline and had programs and had budgets for how they're going to uh, part, uh, make women participate in development. There was this sense, though, you get this sense when you're reading the book that you were always, um, there was this sense that you shouldn't be poking the bear too much. And by the bear, I mean the religious uh, clerics. And everyone seemed to sort of participate in that. Uh, they were always the elephant in the room. How do you go about 
trying to make changes while keeping the, you know, this sort of religious right and, and, and very reactionary clerics in mind. How do you, how do you even go about doing that? Well, you know, actually, um, we learned a lot from our, from our people on the ground, you know. For instance, there was this wonderful woman, Shamsi Amiri, in Mashhad in Khorasan province. And she was both one of the most uh, um, advanced feminists at the time, even today. But at the same time, she knew how to deal with these things. For instance, she would teach, she would have people come and teach the Quran, for instance, but then seeing a positive side of the Quran. She would, um, she would invite people, the wives or daughters or sisters of the uh, religious people uh, to participate. And she would make them see what a woman should do. So if a wife or daughter or sister does that, it makes a difference on the mullah himself, you know, <laughs> a, a, a graduate. And then at the same time, she did all kinds of very progressive, like teaching um, repair of uh, electric, electric uh, uh, ut utilities or utensils. Uh, so she had all kinds of, you know, or sports, you know, that were very advanced for women. Uh, so uh, the idea is not to negate something that is so dear to people, which is their beliefs, and to see that all religions have come in the context of history. That is, even though we are, uh, we are living at the same time, we are not contemporary. Uh, and that, uh, but the religions, all of them, you know, I have a whole list of some of the things that are repeated in Islam, that are repeated in Christianity, in Judaism, and all of the others. So the beautiful stuff that are love thy neighbor, or all of that, but then there are also really things that are outdated and impossible uh, to do. So we were, we were playing it carefully. We would bring up stuff, but we wouldn't do it in a way that would be uh, aggressive, or, uh, or difficult to stomach and, and a step at a time. And, we, and when we got, I mean, one of my most difficult challenges were when I worked with the Minister of Justice and the Ministry of Justice is the, the most conservative, you know, because they deal with the laws. And when I worked with them, you know, uh, the law that we wanted to, the family protection law that we wanted to, uh, to work with, uh, we could get some things and we couldn't get other things, you know. So uh, it wasn't perfect. It didn't completely, let's say, uh, nullify polygamy. But it says only one wife with the acceptance of the, uh, the uh, first wife and if the conditions of the first wife requires it so that it's not really a marriage. Uh, but uh, once this happened, it was really a challenge because when I, I, since I'd worked with the Minister of Justice and we had come to an agreement, I couldn't fully defend this because obviously it wasn't perfect. But I couldn't also say, oh, this is terrible, you know, because I had helped agree, you know. So uh, there are places that, you know, challenging, you know, it's really challenging. But as soon as we did it, we started doing the the next um, uh, revision, you know. Uh, so uh, that was one of the things. We get what we can right now, 
and then immediately start going to the next place and use as neutral and normal um, uh, presence and way of speaking and vocabulary the most you know unemotional <laughs> and uh, less least exaggerated vocabulary that could say the same thing you know that we wanted to say and so that's the aristocratic grandmother coming out <laughs> exactly exactly right exactly. now with you and so um you talked a little bit just before about, you know, if, if it hadn't broken down, um, and I guess by broken down, I guess you mean the, the revolution happening, where, where women in Iran would have been today. And you touched briefly on the family protection law. And in the book, you write that to this day, that law remains the most advanced law for women in the region. Could you just quickly go through what it was exactly that the family protection law was? Uh, the family protection law, uh, in effect, defines the relationship between a woman uh, within the family, which means everything from childcare to marriage itself, to divorce, uh, to polygamy, uh, to the right to work, to a whole the position of a woman in the family, which is the institution that shapes the way people, humans, behave outside of that, because that's where it's shaped. And sometimes we don't quite see our own role as women, as mothers, as sisters, as uh, daughters in shaping that and either acquiescing, acquiescing to that or to fighting it. Uh, it, it, it we, we define that. So um, uh, uh, that's, that's what the family law is all about. That's why it's so difficult to change it because it changes everything. It's the architecture of human relationships, I call it. It's the way it shapes the human relationships because that's replicated in school. It's replicated in communities. It's replicated in the political economic system and it definitely is supported by the religion, you know. So uh, so that's, it's so difficult to change because it, you know, actually defines everything in life. And it's the hardest thing to, to really change. But uh, if you work with men, for one thing, first, you know, and if you let them know uh, how, uh, of course, you know, the other thing that we did was we didn't keep thinking that we have to, um, you know, educate men or, or make them uh, advocate directly with them so much, but learn ourselves what kind of thing do we want, you know, and why do we want it? And first educate ourselves so that we would not be patriarchal to begin with in our own behavior, telling our little girls that you must wear pink and girls, you know, shouldn't do this or that, or tell our boys you can't cry or boys don't cry or be tough or whatever. I mean, just simple things like that to the more uh, complicated things. So we should educate ourselves first to see what kind of world do we want, what kind of relationships, and then try to communicate with the uh, men. And that's what the Iranians now have done. You know, the Iranians uh, uh, in Iran, the young girls, they they really have 
come out to start this, but they have brought the men in with them, not as, uh, you know, antagonists, but as uh, supporters. And, and that started with the One Million Signatures campaign. And we have had the inside-outside communication with our uh, friends in Iran uh, all along in these last two decades, especially, and watched them, you know, uh, create these situations and create these uh, collaborations, which has been fantastic. And I think that's why it's such a fantastic model globally, you know, for, for the uh, women's movement. Just to give a background for people, the One Million Signatures campaign was a campaign launched in the early uh, 2000s by um, women's rights activists in Iran, um, it was also part of the Stop Stoning uh, campaign. And you touched briefly on the, the, this insider-outsider. Um, you know, you went, you, you went into exile, uh, and it's, you tell that story in the book um, about getting this phone call telling you not to come back, and about the arrest and hanging of uh, Farouk Roparsa, um, who uh, people can read about in the book. But... It was important for you, why, to keep that connection with, with women in Iran? Why, why was it important for you? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, because uh, I, I had such a connection with the country, you know. I mean, even though I've lived most of my life in the United States, either as a student or working uh, in exile, but but there is uh, us Iranians, you know, have this real connection with Iranian culture and Iranian um, country, you know. Uh, that is one of it, and the other is that I had seen what they were doing and how um, carefully and how uh, in what interesting ways uh, they had brought about these extraordinary. Uh, unequal uh, situations for women in Iran. The, the way we were at the end of the uh, period when, when the revolution happened is really not replicated in very many uh, places, especially not in the global south. So, uh, so that's why I wanted to use that experience, that knowledge, that wisdom that has been created in that country and uh, be able to help them uh, regain it and also to use it for the uh, global movement. That's what uh, Women's Learning Partnership is all about, about sharing knowledge, about learning, uh, about learning from each other, about dialogue, about participatory leadership. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I thought that that was a perfect model for uh, experience uh, that we've had to to use that globally as well and and inside outside because as we see in Afghanistan as we see in Iran as we probably unfortunately see in other countries uh, even open countries become closed and once they become closed we really have to have ways of helping the women inside or the men inside both of them to open up, to be able to get information and to get to pass on information. And one of our lucky uh, breaks has been the social media. Uh, it's been used badly also, but the social media makes this possible. 
makes the learning possible. And that's why we have a whole new program on inside, outside, and opening closed societies. You know. uh, for people who don't know, the, the Women's Learning Partnership is, is a global uh, women's rights uh, organization founded and uh, uh, Mahmoud is the director of it. So keeping, you were still doing your women's rights work even after um, you were exiled. Um, and there was a, a lot of the, the things in this book, uh, you know, there are moments in Iranian history that you sort of provide the details on and the back channels that we don't know about. Um, and so, for instance, I didn't know that the offices of the Women's Organization of Iran, which was on Takht Jamshid Avenue, uh, was destroyed, that its documents were destroyed. And I'm just wondering, with the writing of this book, are you hoping to sort of revivify that history and provide that history to people? Uh, absolutely. I think that uh, I feel particularly responsible because I happened to uh, start everything very young in my life. I was 18 when I got married, you know. <laughs> I, I went to college when I was 16. So I, I was in a hurry always. <laughs> so that's why I'm alive. Lots of my colleagues, some of them, of course, unfortunately, such as uh, Farrakh Ru, were murdered for nothing except dedication to her country. Uh, but others, Manjerion, Senator Manjerion, others have, have passed. There aren't very many people you know, who have that uh, history, and very many of them don't any longer have the documents. So we have all of that, and, and we have gathered it together and uh, as Women's Learning Partnership, and we are building archival material from the global south to help with building a really global movement, not Western, not Eastern, but a global movement based on shared ideas and shared concepts, but contextualized to, to fit the time and place and the culture that people have at the moment. I'm not sure how much you've been um, watching the, the protests and what's been happening in Iran, but there was a, a, a something that happened in early October of last year at, uh, I believe it was at Amir Kabir University, where um, there was footage of the uh, boys and girls at the university knocking down the wall that separated them in the cafeteria from eating together. And I was reading your book and on page 127, you say that you got a call from your deputy at the time saying that male students were demonstrating at the university that they wanted the cafeteria to be sex segregated. This is in 1977. Um, you know, it just sort of blew my mind because here I was seeing these young kids breaking down that wall. What does it feel like for you to, because you're so invested in sort of having, you know, you, you put this family protection law together, they come along and they get rid of it right away. That's one of the first things they did. And what does it feel like for you to see what is happening in Iran at the moment? Well, it, it, it's, 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 I'm hoping, I'm very optimistic, you know, uh, I'm very optimistic because of what I have seen women do in Iran. 
throughout the years, what I've read about them and what I've witnessed myself, you know. And I think that uh, I'm not surprised so much that the mm. global women's movement will be initiated by Iranian women. This should have been done in 1957. Um, 1957 or 1979, I mix the dates. 1979, it should have started then uh, because we were ready. We had done the experiments. We had found the way together with not only with Iranian women, but we traveled to Soviet Union, to China, to India, to uh, Iraq. We learned from everybody. And we had put these things together and it was ready for the Ministry of Women, the all of the, the family laws, all of the things, the, the support that women had who had children as uh, as employees, childcare on the premises, uh, seven months of pregnancy leave, half-time uh, work with full-time benefits. All of that we had done, you see? And that's what we wanted. That's crazy. <laughs> that's I mean, people, don't even, you know? people don't even have that now. Exactly. Exactly. In the United States, with all of its democratic history, and with all of its scientific and financial uh, possibilities, we are not anywhere, uh, anywhere where we should be, near where, where we should be. So uh, I'm not surprised that Iranians have done this, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm hoping that others have done it. They, they are doing it, you see, from, from some small group in some small town in Germany to the Parliament of France, to Canada, to oh, everywhere, you know, European Union, everywhere. People are doing this, you know, they're, they're, they're supporting this because it is based on, on the learning, uh, the cultural uh, sharing that people have had for all of these years and, uh, and the courage that they have and, and, and maybe in a way if, if the Islamic Republic wasn't as savage as it is, maybe it wouldn't have this kind of uh, reaction. So uh, if that ends up in a global movement, which is so much needed now, where the world is so interconnected and we are facing so much misery from climate justice needed to refugees that are a cause of climate, caused by climate uh, partly and by poverty and the violence that we are all facing. All these wars, we are not finished with, uh, with Ukraine, we are already thinking of China. Uh, so uh, we really need as women to work with men to say, cut it out, this is ridiculous. We can't live like this. We can't have our children and grandchildren live in this kind of a world. What in heaven's name are we doing? And I think the Iranians are giving an example that is workable. And the way people have reacted, men and women, it shows that there is need for uh, seeing the necessity of interconnectedness and the, the reality of it and how whatever happens in one part of the world is as a reaction in another part of the world. And if we're going to change this situation, if we want to stop from pandemics to climate to you know, war, 
we have to have the women take the part that they they haven't had and lead this movement. There are no Gandhis, there are no Mandelas, <laughs> there are no Martin Luther Kings who are all men. Now we need some women to come out and and uh, and do what they can do. Uh, but that needs a movement. <laughs> Why do you think? And this is a pretty broad question, but there there was there's a lot of criticism about the changes and and the laws and the rights that happened in the 60s and 70s. The criticism being that they were fake, they were just cosmetic, they weren't real. And there's a real vilification by some of the women's organization of Iran. Why do you think that is? Where does that come from? Well, part of it was, you know, the the uh, part of it was the I, the change that that is a huge change. It's a very difficult, complicated, and uh, infrastructural uh, change. That change is always hard for a lot of people. The other is that Iran was put in a place between the Soviet Union and the Tudehist and the Marxist uh, offshoots of it that were constantly, very urgently, and very successfully uh, Egypt, uh, uh, sending propaganda all over the intellectual part of the uh, country. And then at the same time, there was the fear of the religious people, not just religious, but, but people who didn't want to change to happen, and mostly for their own uh properties or or because uh, don't forget that the issues of the uh, uh, agricultural uh, developments in iran had a hell of a lot to do with with um, uh, with the mullah's property because the, because that was given to them so uh the, the far right and far left were very good at uh, propaganda and also they came together at the end my own sister, the wonderful woman as she was, she was, uh, you know, for the longest time, when she came out of Iran, when she was 11, she didn't know anything about Iran, but she became a, a Marxist and, and uh, a really strong uh, far-left Marxist. She lost her husband in this process, but then she, she changed her life, her mindset, and, and changed her way of behaving toward the end. But uh, so this this propaganda between far, far right and far left, and the fact that they united, you know, they, 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 the far left began wearing chadors and even wearing gloves, you know, to uh, cover their hands to accommodate uh, the Khomeini uh, side of the revolution. So there was a lot of that, you know, and and. Uh, and of course, the change was too huge and too, too all-encompassing. If if we had had, if we had not had the perfect storm, we would all be in a different place. You know. What What do you want? I'm I'm going to get. There's a lot of questions in the uh, in the chat, but I I'll just end with this. And you know, I I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately, we don't have uh, that much time. What do you want people to take away most? from this memoir? Well, the reality of, of the women's struggle in Iran, the fact that having a savage government like we have now and a, a, 
an ignorant government like we have now and a corrupt one does not bring about uh, positive and uh, uh, positive reactions and, and uh, great ideas. Uh, it, well, this is what has happened in the past, you know, it's history. I'm just going to go through some of these questions. Let's see. So there's a question that says, where do you think the women's movement since September, so I guess since these protests started, where the women's movement since September is heading in Iran? Will they be able to change the regime without any leadership at this point? Uh, I think that the, what they have done is very wise. The fact that women have been successful in bringing the men with them. The fact that they have not really dictated what kind of government they want without waiting to see what the people will say. What they're saying is, is the conceptual woman life liberty. No one objects with, to that. If you keep that, the, the, the holistic wish that you have for human rights generally, and then work together to create a situation where people will be able to express their, both their wisdom and their wishes in forming a government, then uh, it, it will be possible. So the, the thing that is very important is to keep the visibility of these young women and men uh, and to keep their uh, possibility of continuing their efforts because it is not easy in the face of uh, violence and, and uh, uh, all the threats that they face, it's not easy to continue unless the world does what it's doing. So we really have to make sure that we, we make that uh, apparent all the time. There, there's a question from Roya. She says, uh, what are the top three demands of Iranians inside Iran that you uh, say, that you would think is most important to address, to preserve justice and freedom in the next decade to come? Well, I think they've said it themselves, you know, woman, life and liberty. And what, yeah. what does that slogan mean to you? Because a lot of people, you know, are interpreting it uh, in their own way. What does it mean for you, women, life, liberty? Well, I think the women part of it very wisely talks about uh, gender change, gender relations change, so that there is equality and support from both sides for each other, men and women working together, which is so much wiser than sometimes we as feminists in America have said in the past, that is separating men and women and then asking for a percentage of the rights that men have. We want all of the rights and many rights that people don't even have yet. We want to have all of those beyond equality and we want to have it together, not separately because no half of the population can ignore the other half. So women is that. And then life is life led as, as human beings. What, what is the constitutes 
the various sides of life, having enough uh, to have a decent life, to, to, have, to not be poor, to not be without shelter, without food, without security, and then liberty or freedom, which again is a component of all that uh, we all want. So in general, I think they cover the whole field, but they don't specif specify in types of government or what kind of uh, organization, because that takes the participation and the uh, thinking of the entire population to decide what kind of work they want. And I think that the inside-outside connection between women outside were very sophisticated and very well off in every way uh, with the inside is very it's, it's, uh, vital to, to continuation. There's a question from um, Yalda. Um, in the book, you mentioned briefly that you hosted Khomeini's grandson at your house. Uh, what was that like? How did it feel to host him? Well, um, the, it was it was not easy because we didn't know what to expect, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, the thing that was very made it easier for me personally is that my colleague Ormos Hekmat, who worked with me all for many years and was the editor of our journal, he had seen him and he said he's really interesting, you know, uh, and you should see him. So uh, he was he was in fact. Uh, a very open-minded person, uh, a very, uh, you know, easy to talk to, reasonable person, and uh, and uh, it sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, enforced my own idea that dialogue is important, uh, even if you don't know what somebody like grandkids of uh, Khomeini are going to say. Um, dialogue, if it's possible, if the man is willing to come uh, and sit and talk, you know. And then before long, uh, I mentioned in the book that he kept saying, us, that is me and her, him, you know, I, we were in the same uh, way of looking at spirituality and, and religion, which is amazing, you know, uh, after just a few conversations. Um how do you feel about uh, someone like Faiza Hashemi, for instance, um, who has been quite active speaking out against the government? Um, do you have any contact with her at all? Or uh, No, unfortunately, I don't. We've, we've spoken at the same uh, uh, events, you know, uh, consecutively. But no, I don't. I think uh, I don't know that much about what she's uh, uh, going through right now, but I think what she says makes sense, you know, uh, and and uh, what she's trying to do is is positive. Uh, so I I try not to hold people responsible for their family or for their own past, even if they're in a place where they're pushing toward what uh, we're all hoping. Why not? I welcome her. I've been I've I've seen you also you've been attending protests uh, in Washington DC um, and you uh, you were in a photo I saw with Ozara Nafisi uh, professor and, and author of um, reading Lolita in Tehran and many many other books she in 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 that book she says that um, the Iranian revolution at times felt like a war on women 
Um, did it feel that way to you? Yes, 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 it did. Uh, because one thing that uh, it seemed both the far left, the left and the far right <laughs> were uh, had the unified uh, vision of was the place of women. They didn't express it the same, but uh, I think that the far left uh, sometimes takes for granted if they have Marxist governments or whatever, uh, automatically some kind of equality comes about. And by that, they all they usually did in their organizations, they really did not give leadership cooker to, to women. They did not uh, you know, have the respect that uh, one expects you know, uh, for women. But the radical right also is the same. Unfortunately, though, I must say something that that is going to be uh, I'm going to really have to deal with in the future. It's my my uh, Baha'i grandma in me. But we as feminists have done that too. You see, we as feminists have uh, backed up uh, slogans like uh, "defund the police," for instance or me too, you know, uh, which uh, in essence, the idea is right. The idea, of course, everybody follows, you know, uh, both the racial uh, equality and also uh, a police that is more responsible. Uh, but, but how you say it makes a, a lot of difference. You know, as feminists, uh, we have somehow shunned men sometimes or uh, said things like, for instance, uh, if, if women are, are, have been hurt, they have been uh, put under horrific circumstances at times, they have been, uh, you know, we all know how, how some women or a lot of women have been treated, but we don't want to replicate that against the other half of the population. If we have a cause, we have to be heard and justice has to come about. But justice has a process. It's not because I say so. See, because anybody can say so about anybody and ruin that person, you know, and they have done it to women. We don't want to replicate that about men. There are a lot of questions here on the page. Uh, about uh, what your thoughts are on the tactics of someone like uh, Ms. Masi Ali Najad and her activities regarding the, the women's movement. What, what, what do you think of her uh, tactics? What, what grandmother is coming out in you? I think Masi is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, doing a, a good job. She, she has brought a lot of attention she has a lot of courage and, and uh, she is a person who, who's comfortable in public and, and can bring ideas to the public. And, and, and uh, so, I mean, she should not be expected to have the kind of input that perhaps some other person could very well uh, bring about. But we need all sorts of courageous people with all sorts of talents to, to make this uh, holistic uh, global movement possible. So uh, Masi has had a, an important role in bringing interest when there wasn't so much interest. And, and she's courageous and uh, she, she speaks 
uh, out of what she feels. We might not match that or uh, agree with all of it, but but uh, uh, we we have to use the talents of our people to the to the utmost. There's also a lot of people asking how they can get in touch with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of a lot of people asking how they can get in touch with you. Um, how how can someone reach out to you if they want to? Oh well, if they if they would uh, send a, 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 an email, uh, I would I would. Uh, Tori is on my colleague. I mean, Tori is not. Kate is on my colleague, and she will get it uh, if they say WSB at learningpartnership.org. Uh, Kate will get it to me, and uh, and I will be very happy to. So they can reach out to you through your organization, the Women's Women's so. Learning Partnership. Although I, almost everyone who even wants to get in touch with me, I'm sure I would love to get in touch with, but there might be some who don't, and I, I get very hurt very quickly. <laughs> so let, let Kate intervene and get me the ones that I should see. Okay, uh, I don't want to take up uh, any more of your time. Let's do one more question. Um, we went through that one. Um, there's a question from a gentleman named Behdad. Um, he's asking what your observations are on the Islamic Republic's Department for Women and Family Affairs. Uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure um, how to answer that. Uh, because uh, we know from uh, from what uh, the Islamic Republic's view of women is, and how strict they are in limiting any change, even uh, child marriage, even uh, any of that. Uh, I wouldn't uh, be, unfortunately, have nothing positive to say about that. I, we should point out too that uh, part of that family protection law was you having the the uh, marriage age raised to 18 for girls, which um, the Islamic revolutionaries, when they came to power, lowered to nine, and uh, which now sets at 13. Um, so, uh, and the UN has said, you know, there there are a number, hundreds of child marriages every year. Uh, in the in the Islamic Republic. Um, before uh, we go, I just first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to everyone else listening out there. Um, you know, there is this, you are in exile, you've been in exile, you say you lived your life longer. Many of us, 8 million of us now in exile. Um, do you look to going back? Are you hopeful that you will go back to Iran one day? Of course, uh, Samira, you know, there you did it again. I, I, I can't have be asked that question without just suddenly having tears in my eyes. You know, I mean, of course, I, I would love to go to Iran. I mean, that's my dying wish that, that I, I would be in that country. I mean, I, I, I just, uh, um, yes, uh, it's, it's, it's what I most want. It's, it's my most, I hope you, you get to go with uh, your granddaughter. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> yes. And I Thank hope you so you much. That. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. As a representative of Banyan Books, I would like to thank all of you for coming out today.
And especially, I'd like to thank our honored presenters. And uh, a note to all that Mahnaz Afghani's new book, The Other Side of Silence, is available from banyan.com. Learn more about her work at mahnazafkhami.com. And Samira Mohiyadeen's work, uh, you can find at CBC's website and on Instagram at smohiyadeen. On behalf of the Banyan Books community, thank you all for coming out today. As hamiye shoma azizon, se pas gozaram ke emruz dar inja huzur dashtid. Thank you both and uh, till next time. Khulafel. Bye. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.